Uh, let's thank God and uh, be about the business. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for time in your word and we're grateful for this building. Lord, we'd ask that you would bless those that help us keep it afloat. Thank you for this swamp cooler, Lord. We're simple people and we like these things. And we'd like it to be a little cooler. But thank you for all the good gifts you give us. And Lord, as we year to year, week to week, gather together and look at your word, we ask that you would bless us in this town. In your son's name, amen. Well, I've been thinking about this for a few, um, well, months probably. Things have, conversations have come up in which aspects of this topic have come up in this last week Leslie and I have been involved in talking to a non-believer that um, wanted to know you know messed up life wanted to know the path to God and what the problem was and I was basically holding this is a woman holding her at bay and saying, no, this is, you don't seem to understand. You need to understand what this is all about. This is not you treating the living God as if he were an idol that you get to use, like people use idols. We're looking at Isaiah 44 this morning, and starting with verse 9, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an image that is profitable for nothing? Why would you do such a thing is basically the question. It's one of the you know, popular passages in Isaiah because he's, as a prophet, making fun of the idolaters. Um, It's something that we, maybe as moderns who lack idols, wonder how, um, and I've said this before, I, I don't want you to think that this is going to be a sermon about the TV or the smartphone. I guess the smartphone would be the, um, the real problem. Not some technological glowing box in your life, either of video games or, or the like, uh, that you may idolize, but, I, but I, don't, I, I don't think that's what we're dealing with this morning. I want us to think about actual idols. Should, should we, we hear about them in history, or you visit someplace, uh, a foreign port, and the place is just littered with idols, and people actually worshiping them taking part of their very narrow food supply and laying it in front of Shiva, decked in flowers, this primitive goddess with skulls under her feet and many arms. I think that's Shiva. You, don't, you actually don't think it's just being done to entertain the tourists because they expect to see idols, but no, they worship idols. 
in other parts of the world. So you know, you say, well, Evan, good, good, because I, I, I want to have some practical application for this sermon. Basically, when you, the Christians are able to be reasonable. Christians are not just a set of rules. We talked about that last week with, uh, out of Corinthians and how, how Paul didn't go after visiting prostitutes by telling you to not go to prostitutes. He wanted to explain to you where your thoughts should be. And if your thoughts were where they ought to be, you wouldn't. We're a reasonable people. And Isaiah, and here is a prophet of, of God, he's, he's wandering around Israel getting words from the Lord. And he's making fun of the idols. And his basic question is, why, why would you do that which profits you nothing? Verse 11, behold, all his fellows shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are but men, but let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. So he's gathering everybody. You've got to stand around. Listen to me. Everybody who works on these things. Kind of a different approach than St. Paul in um, Ephesus, where the idol fabricators were causing a riot because of the drop in sales. A little bit more pragmatic. Paul wasn't preaching against Artemis. Isaiah is, because he's in the people of God. They shouldn't have idols. So he's calling them together. You're going to be terrified. You're going to be put to shame together. And his argument is mockery. The ironsmith fashions it and works it over the coals. He shapes it with hammers and forges it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He fashions it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a home tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and makes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, over half he eats flesh. He roasts meat and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my god. Hmm. Pretty comic if you were the average idolater in Israel at the time, standing around listening to this preacher, and you've got a, you know, a sack of uh, low wood to take home that you're going to make into an idol, and the rest you're going to burn for warmth or, or to cook. It's, it's almost too plain. What am, I, what am I doing? What is the idolater doing? Well, he's seeking deliverance, right? Deliver me, for thou art my God. So obviously, this, this 
this weight of stupid that he's pointing to. Can you see yourself? This is not rational. But I want deliverance. What does the idolater have? The idolater has at least some humility. Look, he's willing to fall down on his knees in front of a statue he carved. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their minds so that they cannot understand. Now we, I want to, I want to point out that idols are really, they're pretty amazing. You see some, I don't remember this personally, I know my parents took me to it when I was a baby. Uh, the Kamakura Buddha, the thing is huge. It's that big Buddha sitting cross-legged in Japan that's, you know, way bigger than this church. It's just the statue of the Buddha. Pretty impressive. And we've seen these things in museums. Amazing things. You see some of the greatest works in Western civilization. The winged victory. There's a missing head, missing arms. And just the little bit we have, the torso, moving forward with the wings behind it. It's Athena Nike. The the Venus de Milo. The, you can see why people, I and mean, that was the CGI of the day. Someone could carve out of a stone something that looked like a, with the beauty of a man. It was amazing that someone had that ability. Stone or wood, hammered metal. There's a danger that people would bow down to these things because they were so Wonderful works of art. And we still go to the museums to see the residue of idolatry. You go, if you go to Athens, if you, anyone wants to go to Greece ever again, um, and you go to Athens, you, you're going to go take a tour of the, uh, the Acropolis, and you're going to go see the Parthenon, the temple of Athena, which you, with your Christian Bermuda shorts and your camera, are going to stand there in awe of this pagan temple to a pagan deity where people did foul religious purposes in worship of this goddess to get deliverance from whatever they felt they needed deliverance from. There's a charm to it. Let's read the stories for you. probably already bought a book for your kids. Oh, I know. We're in the Christian classical schooling. Let's buy a Bible story book and a Greek mythology book. Right? Classical Christian. And so you get to read the stories out of Ovid. Everybody reads the Metamorphoses. Everybody reads this, that, and the other. Everybody knows what happens with certain stories because they're charming fictions, if they're fictions. Part of our culture built our, our Western world. It's not just the philosophy of the Greeks. It's, it's the storytelling and the and the myth. There's a sublimity to it. If we look on the bright side, idolatry has a real kind of a cachet that we, that we would uh, kind of wish we could recapture almost, just so there'd be some reality to religion. But Isaiah is not a modern with the absence of religion. He's an ancient with religion staring at him everywhere. 
And you have the temple of God in Jerusalem and the voice of God in his spirit walking him through Palestine ministering to people who were bowing down to something they whittled. That's a different problem. We're impoverished because our lack of gods and so we get excited when you feel my dad was talking to someone this last week or the week before who had converted to Greek Orthodoxy which is dumb don't do it if anybody was thinking about converting to Greek Orthodoxy and part of it was part of the reasons given that having visited a certain religious site how spiritual they felt someplace in Italy and my dad said well yeah of course you did that's what they're designed to do make you feel religious. You can walk into that unbelieving cathedral in Spokane, St. John's. It's a very nice Gothic cathedral, nicely done, flying buttresses, everything. Very gray, very ebon. No special whiz-bang, modern stuff, hanging banners, just a cathedral. The place is as unbelieving as every Episcopal situation, but you walk in there and you feel religious. You, you, you can't help it. It's architecture. It's what it tells you. You walk through our doors here, and I'm not complaining. I'm very glad we have this church, you know, but you walk through our doors. There's just enough head clearance in the door to clear your head, right? So it's got this human-sized stuff. You walk into a Gothic cathedral, whether it's in Europe or, or here, it just the world comes apart. It just, it just keeps going up. Our whole society in serving the false gods, let alone, you say, well, cathedrals, false gods? Well, in a sense, yes, because we're, we tell a story. We want to have a splendid image. We want to have something that will draw us out of ourselves into a faith and so we write a fiction, we write a mythology, we build a building, we craft an idol. Even a lot of idolatrous stories about the Christ or the Blessed Virgin or whatever else you want to do in Christian history, a lot of it is fiction. But we're writing a fiction to give our, our need for worship a place to go. Now, We still have the same problem. We're secular humanists, not we, not we, our society, is a secular materialist, secular humanist. And if idolatry is stupid, it has a stupid with redemptive qualities, right? Not redeeming you, it won't answer you, it won't fix you, it won't deliver you, but it's great for the culture, it's great for the art history of, the, uh, of your people, it's great for your sensations of purpose, a, a sublime sense. But when you strip away the spiritual, oddly enough, instead of being stupid, instead of being stupid, we decide we're going to be really, like, really high stupid, uber stupid, if that's a word. 
because everybody uses Uber now. I've decided I'm going to attach it to everything. Uber stupid. Over stupid, basically. It's stupid to whittle out of your firewood the God you worship. But if you make a really nice one, we can understand. We can see the point. But stripped of our gods at all, we don't get any better. We turn to ourselves for deliverance. The French, God bless them with their enlightenment, told us we're the measure of all things. And we turn to ourselves and uh, ask to ourselves, deliver us. And we write a fiction about ourselves. And what's really going on? We try to explain our gods and our and the fiction has no sublimity. Do you realize that you're just a, a sack of hormones that's just in bad ratios and you've got to be drugged up to fix it this way or drugged up to fix it that way? And there's actually a, a, and a, 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 there's an apocalypse at the end of this myth. The, the whole universe comes to an end and there is a redemption that you could live to that point. In the, on Drudge yesterday, I think, scientists say immortality is within reach. Scientists say immortality is within reach. You can bet California is very excited today. That news. Because everybody there wants to be tanned, toned, and immortal. It's amazing. We're writing ourselves an even dumber fiction to bow down to. I've noticed it in, in, in counseling situations. Or you, you, the people tell you their story and they, they actually want you to talk to them like they were a sane human being. Like, like they, their plans really made sense. And you almost wish, remember that scene if you've read uh, Till We Have Faces? At the end, Orwell, the, the ugly sister, has got this long piece of written work where she has a complaint against the gods. And she gets up in front of the gods and she gets a chance to read it and it says virtually nothing. It just is self-absorbed nothing. Inane. You almost wish people would hear themselves saying, you're telling me what you just did. It's one awful decision after another where you decided you were smart enough to run your own life and this is what you decided to do. And now you're talking to me, a counselor, because it ended up so badly and you don't want me to say you're an idiot? You don't want to say, you've got to stop worshipping this idol called you. Because it's stupider than Baal. There might be a chance that Apollo's a real god. But there's no chance you're a real god. None. At least I have an image. A fiction that writes a positive, better than man role for the false gods. But I write the fiction for me that I tell me that I am able to run my life. When I need a god above man, I need a god above man to give me any meaning at all. To give meaning to reason to give meaning to morality. Something has to stand above man. I can't. At least an idolater has a beautiful temple 
with an idol in the middle of it, and a priesthood dancing around and whipping themselves, at least there's some sensibilities. You get up in the morning and shave and look at the person in the mirror and say, yes, he is going to be making all my decisions today with all of his capabilities. Finish shaving, not avoiding cutting yourself because you're retarded. You can't even shave without cutting yourself. You ever feel that? I threw my back out changing a diaper once. Okay? I forget which kid it was. Which kid was it? Doesn't really matter. I'm bitter against them all. Bending over the bed. The kid was on the bed. Bending over the bed. And boink. I went down on my knees. Those of you who had back, have all of you had back problems? So we can speak like you all know what we're doing. It was awful. I had to be rescued by my wife. Because the God had fallen. Now, we like that scene in the Bible where the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines after it's captured uh, when Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. And the, the Ark is captured and they put it in the temple of Dagon. And every morning they come in there and Dagon has fallen over until his hands break off. That's what it's like. That's what we are doing. The uber-stupid, stripped of any sublimity in our fictionalized gods, instead of running to a true god, we run to a more grossly inferior plan. A fiction where we know what we're doing. No one considers verse 19. Nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on his coals. I roasted flesh and have eaten. And I shall make the residue of it into an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Now, that's not the story you have to tell yourself because we're secular materialists. Speaking of our, our society. But you want to say, you want to draw out what you're doing in ultimate clarified ways. I am believing I can run my own life in a world filled with seven billion other people all thinking they can run their own life and contending in some cases over the same territory at work, at church, in a discussion group on Evan's porch, whatever it is, whenever we meet you have met someone who is proudly walking like a lord of the earth, deciding that everything that he touches should do it his way or her way. That's where every problem in the world comes from. Everybody has decided they're the divinity. They're the divinity and they walk into a situation and they can't believe it's not fair. They use every point of leverage to get everyone else to bow the knee to the God they bowed the knee to. At least the Muslims expect you to worship Allah. We expect every one of us, for everyone that touches our life, to attend to our will, to obey us, to consider our feelings in the matter. 
Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Should I? I mean, should I? We're watching in the news proper, you know, a couple lesbians go into a bakery, and pretty soon the Christian bakers are facing a $135,000 fine and a ban from the judge to say anything. Or was it a county commissioner? A county commissioner getting above himself. Because somebody felt that somebody said something I didn't like. You offended the deity. And so they wouldn't complain to some of the other deities who like that standard, don't offend the deities. You say, why does he say deity instead of deity? I like the sound of it better. And this is how languages change. The authority of the pulpit. Should I bow down to a block of wood? Why would I consider your feelings? He feeds on ashes. A deluded mind has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. Or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He can't either deliver himself, this little made-up fiction, and he can't admit it. Dealing with these this non-believing situation where he's talking, it was like they were following, I was, I was laying this out, this question here. You are either serving the living God, or you are serving an artificial creation of one sort or another. And in your situation, this person's situation, they were serving um, themselves. And they knew perfectly well that no morals could exist. They would have to live in a world filled with rat bastards if they insisted on following themselves. And you know, that sounded better than bowing the knee to a god who you had to do what he said. You no longer had a choice. Because when you're writing your own fiction, when you're making up your own god, you get to make up what it says. You get to make up what's important, what's valuable, what's moral, what's true. As soon as you find another god who is actual, not fictional, he says things, and you've got to do it. Make one of those hymns. Um, something, thus saith the Lord. I'm waiting for the phrase, thus saith the Lord. Is that that one that you requested, Stacy? Um, we're, we're, we're waiting for the phrases from God. He has said. We look at Abraham and venerate him because he believed God. That's the nature of faith. Believing God. That's the danger of faith. You're not controlling that God anymore. It's a really hard decision. People would rather live. I don't know what the right word would be. Is it... Um, Theonomachy or something like that, uh, War of the Gods. Anybody know what the right word would be? Something like that. That's what this world is filled with. That's what we got right now, the War of the Gods. Nobody wants to give up their deity. Nobody has any continuity. There are some people that are religious, but and they actually have either a false deity or, or um, 
an expression of religious purpose, but most everybody is just serving themselves. They're bowing down to themselves every morning in the mirror. There's no deliverance in that, and there's no ability to admit it. And even when it's explained to them, and they understand how highly stupid it is, they still would rather not. They would still rather, you having shown them the rational purpose that God has on the universe, at least when we show someone a God, we say, and this God exists. Remember these things, O Jacob, verse 21, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. He's just thrown these, you know, idolaters saying, you guys are just such idiots. What is God's claim? That he made us. And consequently, we are his servants. It's his world. Now you say, well, isn't that just a story? But the story, whether you believe it or not, makes sense that the God who formed it could claim you in it. If that God exists, he has a claim to you. He formed this world. He made the rules by which it functions. He is the judge, because it lets you know that he has swept away our transgressions, our sins like mist. He has this ability to both judge and forgive, judge and have mercy, judge and punish. Now in that situation, that narrative, you could disagree with whether it's true, but the narrative makes sense. I'm not whittling a god out of part of my firewood that I then say because the God I whittled is impressive you should bow down to it it's not a false promise in terms of its rational claim you can talk later about whether or not it's demonstrable that's a different, different quote. but within it this is why in epistemology, the study of knowing, the revelation of a God who knows is a rational epistemology. You're saying, well, of course, a God, if the God exists, would know, and he would tell you that would be true. That would make the thing you knew true. You don't even have to believe in the God to believe that that is a rational claim. This is a rational God's place. The maker of heaven and earth, not the being made by that which exists. That's the difference. The maker of that which exists, not that which was made by that which is exists. He reveals himself. You don't reveal him out of the woodpile. And when that's the case, verse 23, the relationship to the creation is, I don't care how well you whittle, and I've seen some pretty impressive gods, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. 
all that the fools would carve their gods out of are busy singing to the true God. They bear witness of him. That's what it says in Romans 1, right? His invisible power, infinite power, and deity are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. It, what does the Lord say, if these people were quiet when the triumphal entry, even the stones would cry out. This is the kind of God we're dealing with where everything that we have made into something we worship, even when we worship ourselves, it's a sad little expression of us taking the image of God that was put on us and turning it into the God we worship. Us taking the creation that God gave us and that sung praises to his glory and we're going to whittle it into a God we worship and ask for deliverance from. Every tree in it is going to sing praise to God. And we were busy worshiping those things. We do do that, right? You might know how the angels show up in the Old Testament or something. Ta-da! You know, beam of light, fried pottage, or whatever it is. Uh, and they always want to bow down to it. The, the human beings, the angels going, um, don't do that. We are servants of God like you. We're not that. You don't get to bow down to anything less than the living God. This religion, if it's true, and even if it's not true, makes sense. It makes sense that this is the claim that a true God would have. Anything else is just a stupid self-deception. This is the only place a God could be. Not created by you. Now, what I, what I did with this, and the dangers of having computers, is I, you notice we started in verse 9? Because I wanted to start after the first eight verses, and I wanted to put the first eight verses down at the bottom. This is how he starts this passage. I didn't want to use it right at the beginning because it seemed like it would give it away, you know. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They shall spring up like grass amid waters, like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, Besides me, there is no God. And that's what we're up against in this world. We've got the God besides whom there is no God. And no fiction can write a God adequate to that role except this. Or ourselves. Every man for himself. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes. 
but it doesn't even make sense. What if I, what, so what if I was, what if I was left with that? What if the atheists are right? Kill yourself. Because nothing makes the sense of this. It doesn't make any more sense if there is no God, that you are the only thing that's deciding in this cosmos what to do. You're still lost, you're still dead, you're still incompetent. And anything you would design to admire will have the rug yanked out from under it anyway. It doesn't change anything to say the Christian God is not there to punish you. You're there to punish yourself. There's this great situation in those first few verses when people start declaring, I am the Lord's. Not this is my God. I am God's. I belong to God. I will write on my hand the Lord's. He possesses. St. Paul says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We look at this basic tension. Either we're going to be serving our own selves and trying to create the deity out of myself or the piece of carved firewood to create my religious sense and my deliverance. And we don't understand. You know, you... What does the Lord say? Who by worry can add one cubit to his span of life? Book of James says, you are but a vapor. Don't boast in your presumption. All such boasting is evil. Yet you vanish. And I like to remind us, we don't even understand women. And that includes the women. I mean, and we're supposed to be making decisions. How do we get through life? We get through life because instead of fashioning the God that we think we can follow out of the, the agent that loves us the most, we, we love ourselves the most in our minds, so we're going to fashion, he's going to make or she's going to make the decisions that, that we're going to feature. Because who would care for me more than me? Well, God cares for you more than you. And he knows more than you, for he made you. You do need a God. You do need deliverance. Without a God, it's just stupidity run amok. And with the wrong God, it's stupid. You only, the only help, the really only hope is to find the true God. Not fashion the true God. Not wait for someone to come up with a great way of thinking about ourselves or God that will deliver us. You don't whittle a God, you find a God. God wants to be sought by you. And for the only, the only God that is worth anything rationally is the God that precedes your thought of him. Okay? He precedes your thought of him. Which means your thought of him has to be a discovery, not a craft. You're finding out who he is. That's why we relish the word of God. Because here is a document from antiquity. Think of it what you will. 
that is revealing that which preceded you and preceded your thoughts of him. You can find him there. You can find him in nature. You can find him in philosophy. But you can find him, but he will precede your thought of him. He can only be found. He can't be created. Everything else is either stupid or uber stupid. Who is like me? Verse 7. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it forth before me. Who announced from of old the things to come? Let them tell us what is yet to be. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Let's thank him. Dear Lord, we're grateful that you are that which preceded our thoughts of you. We are grateful that our stupidity, our ways of running our own life, our thought that we can craft a better fiction to serve, a better God to bow down to, with all of our art and all of our craft, nothing comes close. Teach us this, have us bow the knee before the phrase, thus saith the Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.